Oh, yeah. So you learn a lot of things when you come back from vacation. One of the things I learned last week is that Steve Hughes writes my sermons for me. Uh, he, he made that claim last week, I think. I, I think he said he, he writes the good ones. And I only preach one good one a week, so... Uh, so I, I, he was here in the first service, so I, I was a lot less kind when he was here so I could pick on him a little bit. But uh, I did get a chance to listen to, uh, to Steve's message last week on Abigail. If you weren't here, let me encourage you to listen to it. You can go to our website. And uh, he just did a wonderful job uh, giving us a, a vision of a, a person of great faith and, and of great character. So I, I would encourage you to, uh, to listen to that. But I thought I'd poke just a little bit of fun at him this morning. So uh, we're going to, we're, we're, we're continuing on in our study of women in the Bible. Uh, we're going to be wandering through First uh, Kings and Second Kings. So I'm going to read just a few verses, but we'll bounce around a little bit. But if you have a Bible and you kind of want to get, get in the area of First Kings 16, that's where we're going to start. Uh, and we will go from there. Uh, so question, if you were going, if you just found out that you were going to have uh, a new daughter, and it was your responsibility to name this new daughter, okay? So whether natural or adopted, whatever, just don't, don't, don't worry about the context. Don't go, well, I'm too old to have a daughter. Or too, just, just let's just pretend you were going to have a daughter, okay? What would you name her, all right? What would you name her? Let me hear. What, what, Susan Warner, what would you name her? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's time for dinner. Oh my gosh, clean up your room. That actually fits really well with a lot of things you say to a child. That, that's perfect. I'm sorry I picked on you. I, do you yeah, okay. All right. Anybody, give me a name. What, what, do, you, what do you like? I'm sorry? Margaret and Mary. Okay. Lydia. Okay. Grace. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Any, any other ones? <laughs> As an ex-businessman, now famous politician, once said, you're fired. Okay. And you lie, right? Normally, he doesn't start reading the bulletin until I'm about five minutes into my sermon, and then, he, and then he takes a look at it. He kind of jumped ahead. No Jezebels. How come? Right? Well, I actually, there's, there's this website called um, uh, Think Baby Names, and I went to this website, and it tells you the popularity of different names in the United States, and it even looks back in history. So, for example, if you were named Tom, which is my name, in the mid to late 1950s through about 1962, 63, Tom was a very popular name. It was like the number four name in the United States. The Toms in the room, we've dropped to about 51st, 52nd place now, but we're still in the top 100. We're doing okay. Jezebel has yet to crack the top 2,000, okay? Not a real popular name. If you're here this morning, you're named Jezebel. You're the only person in the United States that name. I apologize. You're never going to come back to Green Tree after this morning. Uh, last week, Steve preached on Abigail, number seven name in popularity in the United States today uh, for probably lots of different reasons. But for, uh, for people who have studied the Bible and, and have studied a little bit about Abigail, and they saw her faith, and they saw her character, her wisdom, right, her, her care for her family. She, she actually helped save her entire household uh, through a lot of really smart, humble actions on her part. So again, names kind of mean things. Well, this morning, 
uh, we're going to move past Abigail. We're actually going to go in the opposite direction. Uh, we're going to look at the antithesis of Abigail. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. Hear the word of God. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your wisdom and your insight. This is not a, a person or a part of scripture that we tend to dwell on very much. Uh, when we read uh, of someone's life uh, like Jezebel that we're going to study today, we tend to uh, feel pretty good about ourselves and are thankful that we would never be that evil or that murderous or that cunning uh, or that vengeful. And yet, Lord, we, uh, if we look closely at our hearts, we see the seeds of, of all of those sins and more in our hearts. Lord, it would be very unwise for us to um, take away from the sermon, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like her. So, Lord, we need your spirit to lead us through this passage. We need your spirit to give us understanding. We need your spirit to give us the humility to acknowledge that we need a Savior as much or more as anybody else. So, Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds today. I pray that you would forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon in a sentence this morning uh, is a bit of a confrontational statement, and it says this, whether we choose to follow God or rebel against him, God is glorified and his will is accomplished. Uh, what that statement does is it kind of takes us out of the center of the universe and puts God in his rightful place on the throne. A lot of us, myself included, tend to enthrone ourselves. We tend to live for ourselves. We tend to live for our own comfort. We tend to live for our own pleasure. We tend to live for our own accomplishments. And it doesn't mean that we won't help some folks along the way. It doesn't mean that we don't have a kind heart and, and we won't reach out and do something for a neighbor or a friend. Uh, but fundamentally, we tend to see the world through the lens of our lives. And so we're irritated when someone cuts us off in traffic, right? And we don't say, you know, that person's really reckless. And if they don't learn to drive better, they could hurt an innocent victim. We don't tend to say that sort of thing. We tend to use really colorful words describing how they've offended us, right? So this is a, a tendency in human nature. And in order to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, we have to take ourselves off of the throne and we have to put him in his rightful place. The song we just sang, I surrender all to you. Every time we sing that song, which is probably, I don't know, four or five times a year, I have to make that a prayer because I know the height of hypocrisy would, me, would be for me to sing that song as if it were actually a reality in my life 24-7. 
I don't always surrender everything to Jesus. A lot of times I live for myself. We're going to see an example of a person this morning who lived for themselves and the end result of that and what happened. But it would be uh, it would be very inappropriate for you or for me to say, well, you know, I'm glad I'm not that person. Uh, clearly, I'm better than them, as if God graded on a curve. So we're going to look at the life of Jezebel this morning in the context of this statement. Whether we choose to follow God or not, he is glorified and his will is accomplished. Let me give you just a little bit of historical context. Uh, Steve mentioned last week, Abigail lived around 1000 BC. She lived during the reign of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Then she uh, ended up marrying David when David became king over Israel. She lived during David's lifetime. She probably outlived David a little bit and lived a little bit into the life of David's son, King Solomon. Uh, Solomon reigned and probably died somewhere around 926 BC, give or take five or 10 years. That's, that's a fairly accurate date based on what scripture says and based on archaeological uh, discoveries. Uh, and then when Solomon died, the, the kingdom was unified. All 12 tribes of Israel were unified and the, the, the capital city was in Jerusalem. But when Solomon died, he had a whole bunch of kids and all the boys started fighting over the throne. In 926, we have this, this, this division, this civil war, so to speak. And what ends up happening is two kingdoms emerge. And perhaps you've heard this term before. We have the southern kingdom, which is made up of two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And we have the northern kingdom, which is made up of the other 10 tribes. The northern kingdom, the capital of Samaria, the southern kingdom's capital continues to be Jerusalem. Where we pick up this story with Jezebel this morning is approximately 870-ish BC, about 55 to 60 years after the death of Solomon. And you heard uh, the scripture where it said Ahab did more evil than all the kings that were before him. So if you count Saul and David and Solomon, and then you have in the northern kingdom, you have four other guys that were kings. So you have another four, that's seven kings. Uh, and then you have uh, King uh, Ahab who enters the scene. And of all the sins that all those seven guys before him did collectively, and, and some of those guys were really, they had taken sinning to a whole nother level, says that Ahab did worse than all the rest. But the historical context is a divided kingdom. Ahab is a ruler in the northern kingdom. The other thing you need to understand is the nation of Israel was a true theocracy, which meaning that God was the ruler and this king was the steward. The king did not have the last word. God's law had the last word. And we're going to see that in the story a little bit when we get to part of the story about Naboth's vineyard. But the king was responsible to set an example for the people. The king was responsible to know the law of God and to follow the law of God, to live that out in his life. He's responsible to lead the nation as they would be faithful in following Yahweh. He, in a sense, was to set an example to keep people on track spiritually. So the question we want to ask is, is in the context of Jezebel, how did Ahab do? How, how did he turn out? Well, if you look at the summary statements about Ahab, what kind of things do you see? What, what would you, and it's kind of the, the way of saying, what would you want written on your tombstone? You know, when it's all said and done, what would you like people to, to, to write on, on your tombstone? Or, or maybe you're, you're not going to, you, you know, you're going to be cremated, but in the newspaper or whatever, what, what would you like somebody to say about you? I thought about my life and about my mortality. This last week. What would I want to say? And I thought, you know, maybe something simple like he followed Jesus. That might be something I like. Now, my family 
you got to kind of keep an eye on them all the time because you're never quite sure what they're going to do to you. You know, if the Blues don't ever win, they're probably going to put on my tombstone, he never won a Stanley Cup or something like that, right? But that's not really what I want to be. I don't want to be remembered for just being a Blues fan. I'd like there to be something more. Well, look at the, the memory of Abraham, Ahab. We read this a minute ago in 1633. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's Ahab's legacy. He was a really, really rotten guy. How did he earn that reputation? What what did he do to end up in that place? Now, I want to be very careful to say right off the bat, Ahab is responsible for Ahab. He has to answer for his own actions, for, for his own decisions, for his own choices. But there are influences in every one of our lives. There are people who speak into our lives. Michael Bach just said I, he was thankful for the, the youth leaders he had when he was younger who spent time loving him and pointing him to Jesus. Who were the influences in Ahab's life? And that's where we back up to chapter 16, verse 31. Is If it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and then went and served Baal and worshipped him. There was a change in Ahab's life, and the demarcation of that change came when he got married to Jezebel. So we want to look at Jezebel as an influence on the life of Ahab this morning. How did she impact him? Well, let's talk about kind of the background of Jezebel, for just a second, she's a royal princess uh, in the Sidonian uh, culture. They are lived in the northwestern part of Israel. So if you're looking at a map of Israel, and over here is the Mediterranean Ocean, and down here is Jerusalem, and you got the Jordan River running between, uh, the Sidonians would live up here in the uh, northwest portion of Israel. Because they were a coastal people, they were very good sailors, which meant they were also very good with timber, because in those days, ships were made out of wood. And if you're going to be good at sailing, you had to be good at building ships. So that's kind of what they were great at. But they were also a people that were very steeped in a pagan religion called the worship of Baal, which led to deep sexual immorality. Baal's a fertility god. Asherah is the mother goddess, and when the two of them got together and you worshiped them, the notion was that your crops would grow bigger, your family would grow larger, and that you would prosper by worshiping these false gods. But the way you worshiped them was actually to be involved in sexually immoral activity. That was how, so somebody said, let's go to church right? Whole different meaning. I'm not trying to be crass, but a whole different meaning then that to, to Baal worshipers than it is to us today. For us, it's something holy. For us, it's, it's something. We're not the most solemn group in the world, but you know, we, we get quiet and worship the Lord. We get contemplative and we can be in awe of his glory and his splendor. splendor. For them to worship was for them to be sexually immoral. And this is the person that Ahab chooses for his wife, a person who is steeped in this tradition. By contrast, look at the nation of Israel. God says to the people of Israel, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself no carved images or likenesses of anything that is heaven above or on earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. He says later on in Deuteronomy, in the introduction to what we call the shame, a hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. Look at the contrast. What we have brewing here between this husband and wife, Ahab and Jezebel, is a conflict of faith. Ahab comes from the nation of Israel that says we're going to worship the Lord God, the one God. 
and he is holy and he is glorious and we are, we are to bow before him and to follow his laws. And here comes Jezebel saying, I got a whole nother way that we worship God and we're going to follow my pagan religion, which influence is going to win. We're going to have a clash of faith. Well, the first thing we need to understand about Jezebel and her influence is that she is extraordinarily zealous for her religion. There's a guy named Elijah who is a prophet in the nation of Israel, and he's prophesying uh, to the true God and to his glory, and he's prophesying against Baal and against uh, the Asherahs and all the false religions. And Elijah's walking down the street one day in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, and he comes across this guy named Obadiah. And he says to Obadiah, do me a favor and go tell Ahab, I'm going to wait for him right here on Mount Carmel, and we're going to have it out. Now we're going we're gonna to see who the true God is. And Obadiah says to Elijah, what did I ever do to you that you hate me so much? And, and Elijah, what do you mean? He goes, if I go to Ahab and I tell him you're going to be here and he shows up and you're not here, he's going he's gonna to chop me in a bunch of little pieces, right? And on top of that, don't you remember, has it been told to you when Jezebel killed, <coughs> excuse me, the prophets of the Lord, how I hit a hundred of the Lord's prophets? I want you to see the zeal of Jezebel. Not so much the, the debate between Elijah and Obadiah. It works out and they both come out on top. I'll tell you the end of the story there. But notice Jezebel's attitude. She's not just saying, well, you have your faith and I have my faith. Let's just agree to disagree. She's saying, you can have my faith or you can die, right? If you're going to preach about Yahweh, I'm going to kill you. That's a zealot. That's someone who uh, demands that the world follow them and they will not compromise. But she not only sought to do away with God's prophets, but she brought in her team as well, right? Look at the, the subsequent verse. Therefore, send and gather all Israel together on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who do what? Who eat at Jezebel's table, right? Jezebel is instituting her influence of faith all over the nation of Israel. There isn't a corner that she doesn't want to touch to bring under the worship of Baal and Asher. She is completely zealous, but she's also a person that holds a grudge and can be vengeful. So Elijah meets up with the, the prophets on Mount Carmel, the false prophets, and they have it out. And God proves himself to be true. And Baal proves himself to be false. He doesn't even exist. And Asher is nowhere on the scene. And Elijah says, now that we know who the true God is, take these 450 false prophets of Baal and execute them. And they're all executed. Now Ahab has to go home and tell Jezebel what happened. She wasn't there when this took place. Okay. Have you ever had to go home and give your wife bad news? They're going to go, it didn't work out. I know I promised. I know I said it was going to be this way, but it didn't quite work out. You ever had to share some disappointing news with a person who happens to really be a vengeful kind of person? Listen to Jezebel's response in 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Hear the vengeance in her voice. She said, I'm going to kill you in the next 24 hours. She doesn't repent. She doesn't say, wait a minute, God actually sent down from fire and honored Elijah's uh, uh, sacrifice when he didn't. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe I need to sit down and have a, have a theology lesson with Elijah. Maybe I need to understand something that I didn't. She doesn't repent. She simply is going to seek vengeance. She's going to balance the scales. She feels wrong and she's going to make it right. 
So I have these, uh, I have four granddaughters, but three of them are sisters and they live in Kansas City together. We were in Kansas City last weekend and it's really fun to, to um, as Jen and I were talking a little while ago, you can play with them and then you give them back. It's a great time of life when you don't have to have any responsibility for them. But I watch these three interact and, and Cindy uh, watches them interact and uh, they're very interested in justice. They're very interested in justice. So the oldest one will come along and the four-year-old's building something and the eight-year-old will look around and notice that mom's not paying any attention, right? And she'll kick it over, okay? Well, the four-year-old is indignant, right? Because this is, this is not fair. This is inappropriate. You know, whatever I was building here now has been destroyed, and that person had no reason to do it. So what's she going to do? She's going to take matters into her own hands, right? She's going to stand up, and she's going to smack her sister, right? Now we got some action brewing. Now we, now we got some fun happening. And what does mom see? Now, mom said, no, don't take this as an offense, okay? But what does mom see? She sees the punch. She didn't see the, the slight kick, right? Because eight-year-old's pretty smart. She's, she's paying attention, right? So who gets in trouble? The four-year-old, right? And the eight-year-old sits there and she smiles, right? Because she got away with something, right? But the four-year-old's indignant. Not, now, if that had happened to her two-year-old sister, she wouldn't have cared because it didn't happen to her. We care about justice when we don't get our way. We care about justice when we're the one that's been wrong. You see our, our proclivity as human beings to care about ourselves above everybody else. Jezebel's no different except for the fact that she has the power to do something about it. Or so she thinks. And so she says to Ahab, I'm not going to let this, or to Elijah, I'm not going to let this go unmet. I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. She's not only zealous, but she's vengeful. She ends up not killing Elijah, just to, to let you know that part of the story. The third thing that, that she is, is she's a very persuasive person. First Kings chapter 21, uh, in verses 25 and 26, it says this. Uh, let me get to 21, 25, 20, or do I have it on the screen? Uh, I do have it on the screen. There's none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, so on and so forth. But notice that word. It doesn't say convinced. It, do, it doesn't say she, she kind of, you know, seduced him into doing it, her thing. It says she incited him. If you look up the word incite, you'll see synonyms like provoke or goad or prod. In other words, uh, Jezebel knew what buttons to push to make Ahab feel insecure if he didn't do what he, she wanted him to do. In other words, she questioned his manhood. If you were really a, a big shot king, you wouldn't let this kind of thing happen. And because Ahab had a, you know, kind of a fragile ego, he would respond with angst and anger and, and do whatever he needed to do that was evil in the sight of the Lord in order to prove to Jezebel that, that he was kind of the, the big he-man. So I found this survey online this week called uh, the real man test. I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing. Uh, and the question is, are you a real man? Now, I'm not going to read all of these, but uh, you'll get the idea. I'll read a couple. And the first one is, have you ever been hunting? And there are three options you can say. No, I can never hurt a living animal. Uh, secondly, you say, of course. Thirdly, no, I don't think it's technically still hunting if an animal sacrifices itself in honor of being my dinner. Uh, so there's one. My handshake, what, uh, please complete the sentence. My handshake makes men cry and women quiver, is firm and respectable, or thirdly, is less enjoyable than holding a jellyfish. Uh, there's one other one, good one here. Your, your channel surfing technique involves... A, flipping back and forth between Bravo and Lifeline, Lifeline, Lifetime. Uh, B, catching some ESPN during the commercials. Uh, 
Or C, oh, I literally surfed the English Channel. Oh, that's not what you meant. So you get the idea. As men, we can be a little fragile in our egos, uh, and, and we can be uh, a little insecure about who we are. And, and Jezebel understood this about her husband. And she would, you know, a real man, Ahab, I'm not, no, nothing personal, but a real king, he'd, he'd kind of do this. I, and I thought you were the king, maybe I, maybe I misunderstood. And you just see Elijah, uh, you see Ahab kind of bow up. <laughs> say, I'll, I'll show you. And it led him down a path of destruction. But she was incredibly persuasive, but she was also conniving and murderous. I'm going to stay in chapter 21 uh, of First Kings for just a few minutes. And I'm going to switch from text to some pictures. So this is story time. So if you have story time at school, you remember that when you like you get your mat out and lay down and have story time. So if you want to lay down the floor, you won't, won't bother me. But we're going to have story time for a few minutes. I'm going to read you a, a pretty good section of, of chapter 21 because I want you to listen to the conniving and the murderous heart of Jezebel. So kind of watch the pictures and, and just, uh, just listen. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because Naboth had said to him, uh, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay down on his bed and he turned his face and would eat no food. What a mature, <laughs> wise king. He's pouting, right? He goes into the bedroom and he slams the door and he, you know, faces the wall and he won't talk to anybody. Somebody comes in and pats him on the shoulder. like, leave me alone. I'm, I, I don't like world life anymore. And, and nobody likes me and that life isn't fair. And he's just, he's throwing a little temper at him. I really expected the verse to finish by saying he acted like a three-year-old. No offense to three-year-olds. I think that is actually a little offensive to three-year-olds. I mean, he acts just terrible. He's just pouting. He's just feeling miserable about life because he can't get this vineyard, right? But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? So he tells her, I spoke to Naboth and he said, said, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Okay, there it is. There's the inciting. Wait, gee, I, I thought you were the king. Maybe, maybe I'm mistaken. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. All right. So you're not man enough to do it, but don't worry, I'll take care of it for you. You just, you just go have your meal and everything will be happy, all right? So she wrote letters to, in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. The men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it is written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. The two worthless men came and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth. In the presence of all the people, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent Jezebel, sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. You see the cunning behind the way this woman thinks 
I've, got to, I've figured this out. I know how to do it. I'm going to lie. We're going to cheat. We're going to steal. You see, Ahab was, was technically correct in one part. His reaction was extraordinarily immature, but he was right in this one thing. And we said this way back in the introduction of the sermon. The, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. The land did not belong to the king. The king couldn't say, all of this is mine and I'm going to let you all live where you want to. The king understood that the land belonged to God. And he was a steward. And he couldn't just, by the, by the law of Moses, he couldn't go in and just say to Naboth, well, if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to take it from you. He would have had a rebellion on his hands. The people might not have been following God at that particular moment, but they were all keenly interested in justice and how it affected them. Because if he can, Tahab can take Naboth's vineyard, tomorrow he might take mine. So Ahab knew that he couldn't just walk away with Naboth's stuff. And so here we are with this cunning and murderous woman who says, well, if we can't do it the honest way, we're going to do it the dishonest way because at the end, who's here to stop us? Which leads my, my, one of my last couple observations about Jezebel and that she's incredibly presumptuous. She sees herself as the queen of the king and who is going to stand in her way? Verses 15 and 16. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, he is dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose and went down and took possession of the vineyard. So here we have a woman who is going to stop at nothing to get her way. She assumed that no one could stop her. She was the queen. She has no fear of God or of man. But that's not where the story ends. I want to fast forward a little bit, 15 years later, and Ahab has actually been killed in battle. There's another king now on the throne of Israel, and Jezebel is hiding, and she is, she's in fear for her life. And we pick up the story in chapter 9 of 2 Kings, and it says this, there, there's a guy named Joram who is, who is the son, uh, one of the sons of Jezebel. And the, he looks out his window and the king, the new king, a guy named Jehu, is riding up to his, his house. And he's like, ooh, this could be problematic because I know Jehu doesn't like my mom Jezebel. And so he kind of sticks his head out the window and he says, is it peace, Jehu? In other words, are you coming here, you know, with intention of, of getting me and getting my mom or, or is everything okay? And here's the answer that Jehu gives him. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorcery of your mother Jezebel are so many? Present tense, continuing to this day. So here's Jezebel, even as she flees for her life, even as the power seems to be ebbing away from her, she still has no fear of God, her man. She continues in her own ways. My last observation of Jezebel is not all of these things about her personality, but actually the tragic end of her life. In Proverbs chapter 21, verses 20 through 23, I'll give you the reference, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to read all the passage. You would go to that next slide. Chapter 21, verses 20 through 23, you have a prophecy about the death of uh, Jezebel. And uh, Elijah's talking to Ahab, and, he's, and he, he's talking about the downfall of Ahab's kingdom. And he says of Jezebel, she will die and the dogs will eat her flesh. Now that's very gruesome talking about wild dogs. And that's just an ugly, ugly picture. But that's the prophecy of the, the ending of Jezebel's life. And then we come to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And Jehu looks in the window and there he sees Jezebel, uh, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of God. 
And he says, if you're for me, throw her out the window. And two of the servants walk up and they throw her out her window to her death. She, she falls onto the, the, the pavement below and dies. And Jehu goes off and he has a celebration. He, he has a banquet because the enemy of Israel and the enemy of God has been defeated. During the banquet, and I'm, I'm giving you a whole lot of verses and a little bit of, of summation. During the banquet, he says, wait a minute. You know what? She was a queen. She was royalty. She deserves to be buried. And so tomorrow morning, you guys go back over there and bury her. And the guys that were sent to bury come back and say, we went to bury her. Nothing left but a skull and the, the bones of her hands and the bones of her feet. Everything else has been devoured by the dogs. Jezebel was cunning. She was zealous. She was vengeful. She sought to balance the scales in her favor. She was nobody's fool. And she was dead wrong because she rejected the God of Israel, the God of grace, the God of mercy. In fact, the name Jezebel literally means not to be exalted, not to be lifted up. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, reading this now in the context of the life of Jezebel, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from that spirit reap eternal life. What do you do with this story? You might be asking, Tom, why, why did you pick such a happy-go-lucky story? I mean, boy, do I feel uplifted this morning. I'm leaving church with such a smile on my face. And I'm so glad I, I came this morning. You know, it's going to be just as nice outside as it was inside this morning. There's an important reason to look at Someone who rejects faith is as is, is important as to look at those who embrace God's grace and mercy. There's a lesson here for all of us. I'll give you a couple of applications this morning. The first one is this. I think we need to be encouraged to persevere in an age when God is constantly rejected and mocked. Uh, there's a current day author who's an agnostic who wrote, rewrote the, the story of Jezebel. Uh, in 2008. She's actually an award-winning author, and somehow she's figured out everything that nobody else has figured out about the life of Jezebel, and she's literally rewritten the story. Uh, and I'm not going not gonna to read all of this summation to you, but just a bit of it, you'll get, you'll get a glimpse. There's no woman with a worse reputation than Jezebel, the ancient queen who corrupted a nation and met one of the most gruesome fates in the Bible. Her name alone speaks of sexual decadence and promiscuity. But what if this version of her story handed down to us through the ages is merely the one her enemies wanted us to believe? See, God's not involved in this, just, you know, they're a bunch of evil people. What if Jezebel, far from being a conniving harlot, was in fact framed? In this remarkable new biography, uh, I'm not sure why it's new, I'm not going to give you the person's name, shows exactly how proud and courageous the Queen of Israel was. She was vilified and made into the very embodiment of wanton wickedness by her political and religious enemies. The new book, Jezebel, brings readers back to the source of the Bible. I'm pretty sure the source of the Bible is God, but I won't go down that path right now. A rich and dramatic saga featuring evil schemes and underhanded plots, war and treason, false gods and falser humans, and all with the fate of an entire nation at stake. At its center, just one woman and one man, the sophisticated Queen Jezebel and the stark prophet Elijah. 
Their epic and ultimately tragic confrontation pits tolerance against righteousness, pragmatism against divine dictates, and liberalism against conservatism. It is, in other words, the original story of the unholy marriage of sex, politics, and religion, and it ends in one of the most chilling, brutal scenes in the entire Bible. But here at last is the real story of the rise and fall of this legendary woman, radically different portrait with startling contemporary uh, resonance in a world mired once again in religious wars. That's a mockery of God. That's saying there is no lesson here for me. It's saying that, that actually what the Bible says is contrary to the truth. And the real hero of the story is a woman who had a, the enough backbone to stand up against the evil men of her day. Now, friends, you, you can say what you want about people being sexist or not being sexist. But what Scripture preaches is the grace and the mercy of God to everyone freely offered and freely given. And yet in our day and age, that's kind of the one message that seems to be shouted down the most from, from our culture, from the world around us. And I think a story like Jezebel needs to encourage us to remember that we are in a battle. People are not our enemies. Satan is our enemy. The, the lies of Satan are the enemy. But, but there are people that manifest this type of message today, and we need to pray for our enemies. And we need to be encouraged that God's allowed us to live in a day and age when so many people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a day of discouragement. It's a, it's a day of great encouragement and an opportunity for a bold witness for Christ. Secondly, this story also serves as a warning against unbelief and rejecting God's grace. As I said earlier, at any moment, Jezebel could have said, you know, I probably ought to sit down with Elijah because he seems to believe something very different than me. And he seems to have power and justice on his side. Jezebel could have turned to Yahweh and asked forgiveness and sought his mercy and his compassion, his grace, and it would have been given to her. But the application this morning is not don't be a Jezebel because you already are. And I are, and I am too. We already have the seeds of all of those sins in our lives. And the biggest sin that we could commit would be this, the same as Jezebel would be to reject the mercy of God to reject his grace and his compassion. But ultimately, the, the, the third application here this morning is an opportunity for us to praise God because his word is trustworthy. And not just in the story of Jezebel, but time and time and time again in scripture where God makes a promise, he fulfills it. And, it, and, it's, and it's very sad and it's very sorrowful that that's what had to be the promise for Jezebel, that she was gonna die in the manner in which she died because of her unbelief. But there's also means that there's power in every word that God speaks. So when God says to you and to me, you can turn to me for salvation. You can put your life in my hands. Again, the song we sang, I'm giving all of this up, right? For what? The promise of new life. Is God going to renege on that promise? Is God going to look at you one day and go, yeah, I was just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I liked you for a while, but then I really got to know you and I don't like you very much. You know, the cross of Jesus, that isn't really for you. No. God's not a liar. God speaks the truth. And sometimes that truth is hard to hear because sometimes the consequences are, are difficult. But it also means that his word of life is true and it can be trusted and it can be ours, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. The question isn't, will God be glorified? Will his will be accomplished? The question is, will we put our faith in him? Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, even in, in the uh, difficulty of this story, um, 
what we see in the life of Jezebel. Father, I, uh, I pray that, again, we would not you know, walk away with a haughty spirit and say, well, I would never be like that. Father, I pray that you would um, remind us this morning that the, the seeds of that kind of hatred, that kind of vengeance, that kind of unbelief is in all of our hearts. Uh, but, but our response can be different because of the cross of Christ, because of the grace freely offered through your gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would embrace your salvation. I pray that we would live in your salvation and that even in this day and age when it's it becoming a little bit more of a challenge, uh, not to be scoffed at and mocked, that we would, uh, we would be confident in your word, live in that word, and share that word with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.